Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, so growing up, like um, church was kind of my life and maybe it was like the same thing for you. Uh, if I wasn't at church, I was most likely um, at, or if I wasn't at school, I was mostly at church uh, at VBS doing a Bible study or a high school fellowship night. And so I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time with the people there. Uh, spent a lot of time, um, you know, trying to fit in and, and, and being mentored and discipled by people there. And, um, and so eventually, though, as I grew older, uh, one thing that I started to notice is that um, many of them actually stopped going to church. And, and many of them started to not necessarily follow God or follow Christ anymore. And, um, and when, when I, you know, and the weird thing is that like we all have Facebook and then so um, I'll see some things that pop up on my feed about what are they doing and, and, um, and it makes my heart kind of sad because I'm like, what happened? You know, like uh, we went to the same church, uh, you know, we, we, we went to the same Sunday services, we, we talked about God, we went to retreat, we talked about faith and and then, and then somehow you ended up in a, in a different place than I was. And um, especially when it came to people that I, I looked up to, I was, I was uh, kind of disappointed. But uh, today, what we're actually going to talk about is, is having humility and, and gratitude in our salvation. Because there are different ways for me to respond to that type of situation, right, with, with the people who grew up at church, right? I could, I could be judgmental of them. Um, I could, I could uh, think like um, I can get angry at them or I can respond with gratitude of, for my own salvation. I can, I can respond with kindness and compassion for, this, uh, for their situation, well, that's going to be kind of the heart of the talk that we're going to go into today, is to have humility and gratitude in our own salvation, that being saved is not something that we should have arrogance in, that being Christian isn't something that we use to, to judge or, or condescend others, that the gift of our salvation is not something necessarily that we flaunt. And um, as I was preparing for the messages for, uh, for today, uh, I was also looking at some psych journals, uh, and th which which talked about arrogance. And there was this one study that really stuck out to me, and it came out uh, May of last year. And and they examined what traits or characteristics were associated with arrogance, and they found that um, arrogance actually was very deeply connected to dominance. That arrogance was actually demonstrated, um, or the key to arrogance, or underlying trait of arrogance was demonstrating an, an obtaining power. From others. Basically, those who displayed traits of arrogance were constantly trying to get out ahead in front of the people around them. And they, and they do this in a lot of different ways. They do this by belittling others. They do it by flaunting or boasting their achievements um, to make themselves look better in front of um, their peers. Basically, those who are arrogant are trying to constantly get ahead of, um, of the people around them. And, and so the study that I was looking at found that the, that, um, the opposite of arrogance, like the arrogance killer is actually affiliation. The desire to get along with others. It's a desire to connect, to relate, and be alongside each other. And I thought that was really interesting because um, arrogance kind of separates. Arrogance tries to compare and contrast and to make you look better, but affiliation 
It seeks unity. It seeks common ground. It seeks how you guys are similar rather than how you guys are different. Now, if you have two groups of people who are sort of different from each other, they are actually predisposed to compete with one another. And this is called tribalism. This is something that you can, um, a lot of people have studied uh, from a psychology perspective, that one of the quickest ways to bond a group together is to have a common enemy. And so if you have two groups who are slightly different from each other, they're going to most likely um, come against and attack one another and compare and contrast each other and and think like, of course, like they're better than the people in the other group. And and this kind, all of this kind of leads to arrogance. But if the people in this group, in these groups, if they actually had a motivation for affiliation, if they had this desire to connect and to relate with people rather than compete, then they would be more likely to work together, perhaps integrate with each other. If they were to focus more on how they were similar, how they were connected, the areas that they overlap with with one another, they would rather than having arrogance or competition, they would actually have unity. And so today we're actually going to see Paul address the Gentile Christians in Rome, warning them against arrogance, warning them against looking down on, uh, the, on Israel, on, on the Jewish congregation. And you see, we've, we've done a lot of talking and a lot of studying in Romans, and a lot of it has been geared and focused to the Jewish populations, to Israel. But now he actually switches, Paul switches his focus to talk to the Gentiles and addresses them directly and reminds them that even those who are the remnant of Israel, those that, are, um, that fall under the blessing of, that God had given Abraham, even the remnant of Israel are actually still saved by grace. And since they are saved by grace and you are also saved by grace, you too groups are more similar than you think. And it is by appealing to affiliation, it is by appealing to how these two groups are more similar than not, that Paul hopes to break down arrogance. Now, uh, but before we get into this passage, one thing I wanted to briefly bring up was the cultural context behind Romans chapter 11. So you guys can actually turn to Romans chapter 11 right now, chapter 11, verse 1. But basically, just as a reminder, we've talked about this earlier uh, in our series of Romans. The first Christians in Rome were actually Jewish, and, um, and they were naturally the ones to kind of lead religious ceremonies, uh, the equivalent to our Sunday services. And they carried over a lot of Old Testament practices because that was kind of their heritage. And so, and then, but then at the same time, there were these Gentile Christians and, and uh, these, these were called God-fearers and um, they were kind of more on the outside. Uh, so you had the Jewish Christians who were, who were leading these religious ceremonies and then you have these Gentile Christians who were also wanted to hear about God, but they were, they were kind of segmented. They were, they were part of worship, but only in, in certain aspects of it. Then at some point, there was some persecution uh, from the Roman government of Jewish Christians. And so they fled the city and the Gentile Christians stayed behind. And so they were the ones who actually started leading the religious ceremonies because the Jewish people were gone. Now, after a couple of years, the Jewish Christians come back. And then now there's this awkward uh, tension, this awkward, awkward dynamic where uh, the Gentiles are leading the religious ceremonies. But the Jewish people who, you know, they were leading it before. And, and so there's, there's, a, there's this weird tension within the Church of Rome right now, this weird dynamic. And, and so you can imagine that these two groups uh, might 
be butting heads with one another and there might be a struggle of, you know, uh, we should be the ones to lead the ceremonies, not you. And so you can imagine that when Paul rebukes Israel for their stubbornness of hearts, that there is a, sigh, a sense of pride and arrogance that the Gentile Christians might start to develop. A sense of, you know, you've had your chance with God. You've had your chance with living under God's blessing and you blew it. It's our turn now to take on the mantle. But Paul reminds these Gentile Christians that salvation is completely and wholly reliant on grace. That Paul warns these Gentiles not to be arrogant, not to be prideful, not to have a sense of entitlement. And that you Gentile Christians and you the remnant of Israel are more similar than you are different. So we can turn to Romans chapter 11 verse 1. And it says this. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And so in verse 1, Paul has laid out that not every Israelite will be saved. The response from the Israelites would have been, well, is, is, is God's promise false? Has he rejected us instead? But, but Paul assures us that God did not reject nor abandon all the Israelites. If this were true, then Paul himself would not have found God. But obviously, Paul has. He was the worst case example of, of a Pharisee, of someone who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He persecuted, he sent people to jail, he killed. He was responsible for the death of several Jewish Christians who believed that Christ was the Messiah. So if anybody would not fall, fall under God's grace, it would be Paul. But Paul has come to Christ, has, has been saved. And in verse 2, Paul says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So Paul, and so this is Paul, he's kind of, he's accessing this, this idea of God's foreknowledge of, of this, the, the theology of predestination. And so Paul seems to vacillate between two extremes, between chapter 10 and chapter 11, in regards to Israel's hardened heart. And in chapter 10, it was all about Israel's stubbornness and how their stubbornness led to um, their hardened hearts, and their hardened hearts led to their exclusion from God's blessing. But here, in verse 2 and verse 3 and 4, we kind of see that he's saying that he's, he's, he's coming back to the idea of God's sovereignty and his foreknowledge as the cause of their hardened hearts. So it's not so much their own Israelite stubbornness, but it is due to God's overall plan, God's overall sovereignty that Israelites have a stubborn, of, has a hardened hearts. And, and he does this and he prevents the, or he presents this argument by uh, providing an example of how all Israel should have perished. All Israel should have been guilty of, of, of punishment and should have been completely wiped out from this earth. But God in his grace extended his promise and blessing to a select few, which are the remnant of Israel. So let's continue with verse 2. And it says, Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, uh, this is referencing an Old Testament passage, 1 Kings um, Chapter 19, 1 through 18, uh, here's some bullet points, but uh, it's kind of a crazy story. There's like Ahab, he was the king of Israel. He married a Phoenician woman uh, who was a non-Jew, and she actually worshipped a, a god, a, a, a god called Baal. 
And she convinced Ahab to worship Baal because, you know, she's his wife and she has lots of influence. And then so when Ahab started worshiping Baal, all of the nation of Israel started worshiping Baal. And then so you have these people, this nation of Israel who are doing religious ceremonies and sacrifices to Yahweh, to God, who has proven faithful for, uh, to them for over 100 years. And then all of a sudden you, they're worshiping Baal, this random God out of nowhere in, in this strange land. And her name, the name of the wife was Jezebel. And so that's why sometimes in TV shows or in plays, you'll hear people refer to a woman called, oh, you're such a Jezebel. And it's because that name is, it's, uh, it represents a temptress who, who corrupts or changes or badly influences someone. And so that's the, that's the cultural context behind the name um, Jezebel. Now, Elijah, so in light of this, Elijah is God's prophet, um, Elijah, what he decides to do to demonstrate God's power, to demonstrate God's faithfulness and how fake these gods of Baal are, what he does is he challenges the prophets of Baal to a competition. And so what he says is, he says, hey, look, we're going to create this altar and we're going to put like sacrifices on it. We're going to douse it with water. And what we're going to do is you're going to pray to your gods, uh, Baal, to send fire and to burn this altar. I'm going to pray to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. I'm going to pray to our God and ask him to send fire on this altar. And we're going to see, we're going to have a competition to see whose God is real. And so these prophets, what they do is um, they start cutting themselves. They, they pray to Baal and they cut themselves and they bleed. And because in, in that religion, it's like um, you only can access Baal through blood, through human blood. And, and, it, and it's really twisted. And, and eventually after, year, after hours of just praying and trying to call out to Baal, nothing happens. And then finally, Elijah comes up. And he prays to God and he gets on his knees and he says, God, may you prove these prophets fools on behalf of you. Demonstrate your power. And in that moment, God brings this crazy fire from heaven and just burns up this altar. And then so and so Elijah, he comes along and then he he takes all these prophets because they're all weak. They're all bleeding out. And then he just kills him. He takes a knife and he just like slits all that. He just kills him. It's crazy. The Old Testament is crazy. You should read it because it's crazy. Um, but so <laughs> Jezebel hears all of this because King Ahab tells um, his wife, like, dude, Elijah just like killed all, all your prophets. Like they had this competition and they all died. And then so Jezebel, he goes, she goes to Elijah and says, I am going to, what you did to those prophets, I'm going to do to you. And then Elijah, he's scared. He's like, oh, crap. Like she's going to kill me. This is the wife of the king. I need it. And so he flees to the desert. And, and, and he's scared. And, and he actually, he whines and complains. And he's like, God, like, I'm trying to do your work. I'm trying to share your ministry and just how, how powerful you are. But, but man, I'm being persecuted. I have no help. Nobody here is to defend me from this person named Jezebel. And, and as he's in this mountain and in this desert, God uh, comforts him with the vision and, and, he, and he reassures them and says, hey, look, like I'm still at work here. Like I, I, know, you're, I know it's tough being my prophet, but just, just hold on, keep holding true. And I'm going to reassure you that there are about 7,000 people that I am going to reserve, that I am going to protect, that I'm going to set apart 
uh, to continue to live within my blessing. And this is called the remnant of Israel. And so, so Paul, let's go back to Romans, right? Paul, he references this passage in 1 Kings chapter 19 to say, look, the nation, the entire nation of Israel was held responsible, was culpable of adultery. Right, because these people, they have a response. Even though King Ahab is king, the whole nation has a responsibility to hold their king accountable, to not adulterate, to, to say no to worshiping to Baal. But they didn't. So the whole nation is culpable of, of sin, of being an adulterer. So they are deserving to be completely wiped out. But still, God in His grace, in His love, in His mercy decides to set apart the 7,000 who had not given allegiance to Baal. And the reason Paul brings up, brings up this story is, is, an, is an example of how even the remnant of Israel, even though they say, you know, we believe in, in salvation by faith, what Paul is trying to demonstrate to the Gentile Christians is, look, their salvation is actually by faith. So too is your salvation by faith. You two are actually more similar than you are different. Right, and so Paul is attacking the arrogance of the Gentile Christians by focusing on how they are more similar than how they are different. In verse 5, he explains this. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, not by works, but by God's grace. And verse 6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And so do you see how Paul is trying to attack the arrogance here, to attack pride? And it's specifically through affiliation by, by exhorting them, by challenging them to say, hey, look, you guys should try to connect with one another because you guys, are, you guys both live under grace. By showing them that they are both objects of grace, that both their salvations are a gift, that both their salvations are, are one and the same. And by focusing on how they are similar, he's, more, he's trying to uh, foster unity within, within this church. So next, Paul clarifies that the fate of those who were not part of the remnant, uh, the, the fate of those whose hearts were hardened were exclusion from God's blessing. Just to reemphasize God's righteousness and His holiness and to let them know that, you know, um, even though God extended grace to the remnant, there is still punishment for those who were outside the remnant. In verse 7, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain, which is salvation by faith or by work. Sorry, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a stupor, a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So in verse eight, we actually see a conflation of two verses with Paul wanting to bring in textual context and history of both of these verses. And in the first part of verse 8, we see Paul use the word spirit of stupor. And this refers to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. And here we see God's judgment on Israel's adulterous and unrepentant heart. And it says, the Lord has brought you over from a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads. And so this is kind of God being having more agency in the hardening of hearts 
that we had talked about before uh, in chapter 10, Paul was more saying it was your choice, your stubbornness that led to your hardened hearts. But we see here that Paul is actually um, going to the opposite extreme now and saying, actually, Yahweh God was the one who, who put you into um, a deep sleep, who has sealed your eyes, who has covered your, your hearts. And then the second part of verse 8 uh, refers to Deuteronomy 29.4. And it says, this is right before God renews his covenant uh, with Israel. Uh, before their second attempt to go into the promised land. Their first attempt was complete failure because they were scared and they didn't obey God. And so in verse 4 it says this, but to this day... The Lord has not given you a mind that understand or eyes that sees or ears that hear. And so we see with uh, both of these two verses that Paul references, how God is kind of the one who is responsible, who is causing, who is influencing the hardening of hearts. Because uh, God, God is the one who hasn't given them the mind to understand. And so we, so we move so as we move to verse uh, 9 to 10 in Romans chapter 11, Paul does uh, something pretty interesting here. He, he shows how uh, Israelite stubbornness has led to their spiritual destruction. And in verse uh, 9, yeah, 9 to 10, it says, that, And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And, and specifically, he was referencing um, Psalm 69, verse 22 to 24. And he says, may the table set before them become a snare, may it become a retribution and a trap. So there's a lot of, that's it's exactly word for word there. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. And so uh, Paul, he, he says, you know, this is the Lord is... Um, involved in the hardening of hearts of Israel and uh, the argument that he's going to make later on that we're going to talk about more next week is this idea of God's overall sovereignty and his plan and that yes so uh, yes Israelites were responsible for their own stubbornness of hearts but at the same time um, God was the one influencing these people to be to have a hardened heart. And because of their hardened heart, what actually happened was that it opened the gate to include the Gentiles into the blessings of God. And so what Paul is ultimately saying is, hey, look, like it is all part of God's plan from the stubbornness of hearts. And we're actually going to see later on an inclusion of Israel. But even still in Psalm 69, verse 22 to 24, what we see here is that the Israelites are still held culpable, still held responsible responsible for their hardened hearts for their sin and and so this davidic this is a davidic psalm that paul is quoting and 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 david is being persecuted by his enemies and david is praying this on behalf of those who are persecuting him right he asked for judgment he asked for retribution that god would pour his wrath on his enemies and and um and so david is asking specifically for god to harden the hearts of his enemies which would cause them to continually reject God and inevitably lead to their physical and spiritual destruction. And it's interesting that Paul quotes Psalm 69 because the enemies of David aren't Israelites. It's actually um, the Gentiles, it's people who are in the land of Canaan. And then all of a sudden, Paul is taking this verse and saying, hey, look, actually the enemies that David's, he's equating David's enemies in Psalm 69 um, actually to Israel within the present context of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 11 in the first century. 
And the thing is that he actually sets this verse in context and puts it in the past tense. So actually Israel has already done this. They have already had their hearts hardened. They've already been judged for it. And so, and so Paul, he, he says, look, like uh, their, their, their fate is sealed and God in his righteousness, in his holiness is going to judge Israelites. But then there is, there, uh, he reminds them, but look, there is actually still hope for the Israelites because God in his sovereignty, in his overall plan, he still offers his grace and his hope and his mercy to these people. And he does this in verse 11. He says, you know, um, even though God's judgment is there, he still extends hope to them. And it says this again, I ask you, did they stumble so fall as to beyond recovery? And he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So that's, that's what Paul is focusing on here. Right? That in, in God's overall plan, the reason why God made the hearts of the Israelites hardened was so that it would open up the doors and the gates to include Gentiles into, his God, into the kingdom of God. And so in this way, Paul is magnifying, he's emphasizing, he's focusing on God's ultimate sovereignty in all of the salvation plan for humanity. And in verse 12, he says, But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for Gentiles, how much greater will their full inclusion be? And so Paul mentions something actually very interesting in verse 12. Uh, and we'll talk about more about this next week. But it's basically this idea that, um, that in God's plan, there is some shape or form of Israel that that Israel will be re-included into the kingdom of God. And so uh, within uh, Protestant theology right now, there's some discussion of whether there is a separate promise for Israel. And, and Romans chapter 11 is uh, one of the contexts or the passages that talk about this. And But we'll talk about it uh, next week more in depth about what that actually means. Um, and it's it's sort of interesting because... Up to this point, it's always been salvation by faith, right? That's been the doctrine, that's been all the theology, but there's been discussion of like, well, it seems pretty clear that God has like, that God is going to reintegrate Israel into um, his kingdom of heaven. But how does that work? Because it's no, because it's now no longer salvation by faith if God has a separate pro- promise for Israel. So it'll be interesting as we uh, break how all this will play out next week. But basically, the reason Paul brings this up in verse 12 is to humble the Gentile Christians, to remind them not to take pride in their spiritual salvation, not to take pride in the fact that their salvation is by faith and not by works, not to take pride and, and to realize and to have gratitude that their salvation is a gift. In verse 13, he says, he says specifically to you, to the Gentiles, I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostles to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then from verse 13 to uh, uh, verse 16 to 17, or from here on out, Paul switches to using a, a metaphor. He uses agriculture to describe uh, it, a gen, the Gentile place with, within the overall salvation history of humanity. 
And he's saying he uses the metaphor of agriculture, of horticulture, uh, to show that Gentiles are adopted into the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, because they are adopted, because they are grafted in, because it actually wasn't a promise given to them um, before, it wasn't theirs, they own a lot to their predecessors, which, is, which are the Israelites. In verse 16 it says, If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Um, sorry. And in verse 17... Yeah, And in verse 17, For if, if some of the branches have broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And so Paul uses this metaphor of a branch being grafted into a tree with the olive tree that we see in the verse. It refers specifically to the, to the Gentiles and the broken branches referring specifically to the Jews who do not believe that Christ is the Messiah. And he's saying that um, the olive shoot has replaced the broken off branch branches and he's and he's saying um yeah the stubborn um, jews they've been removed from the promise of god and the gentiles have been have taken their place but despite all this paul is going to exhort them and he exhorts them do not think that you are superior to the other branches because remember you were grafted in you were adopted you were brought into their inheritance this inheritance actually is not yours Next, Paul anticipates how the Gentiles might respond to this idea that um, they were grafted in. But, um, and, and the Gentiles respond by saying, you know, salvation is actually, well, like, I mean, it's their own fault. Like, they, they were not faithful. They did not believe Christ is the Messiah. And in verse 19, he says, well, you will say then the branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. Right? And so, it, it, like, we deserve to be here. Uh, in verse 20, granted, that is true, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith and do not be arrogant, but tremble. And so Paul is exhorting them here to have a, a, a perspective of gratitude of their salvation, not of arrogance. In verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And so... Um, Paul exhorts the Gentile Christians to remain humble, to not be arrogant, to, to tremble before God, to tremble in their salvation, to, to greatly appreciate that this is actually a gift and not something that they've earned. And he reminds them that ultimately God is the judge. He is the one to decide whether who gets into heaven and who doesn't, right? God really is the one who decides to say, hey, like, um, I'm going to include you into my promise. And just as easily as he extended it to the Gentiles, Paul warns them, you know what? Like, God can actually withdraw it from you too, right? Because God is the ultimate judge. And if he wants to, he has every right to do so. And, and, and even more poignantly, we saw it with the branches, how, how these people who did not believe that Christ was the Messiah were broken off from, this, from the root of holiness. And so they should serve as an example to have a, a humble heart, a grateful heart of, your, of the gift of salvation. Finally, Paul finishes with an exhortation of kindness. This is how they should treat one another. This is how he hopes to bring unity within the church. In verse 22, it says this, Consider, therefore, 
the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in to cultivate an olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And so this is Paul talking about eschatology. This is Paul talking about what's going to happen in the future. And we'll go into more in depth what this will look like in the future. Uh, next week but all of this to say is that he's warning them he's reminding them that god is the ultimate judge you should have fear and trembling when it comes to your salvation do not um do not flaunt it do not have pride in it because you actually uh, did nothing to deserve your salvation and um just for some context like i press like so when paul says you know god can with um that you will uh, also be cut off because you do this right um there's different ways to kind of think about it, it it's um one way to think about it is like how god withholds his salvation to people who might fit this criteria it might be well those people actually never really believed in christ and so um god's uh, standard for salvation is consistent um but there's also i believe what um, paul is trying to suggest here is that hypothetically because god is god he can determine salvation to be whatever he wants because he is yahweh he is the creator and so hypothetically he could choose to exclude some people just because um they don't um they are not representative of of the image of god of of, of not being kind and not fitting this criteria uh, but uh, do i think practically that god will actually do this i don't think so because he has to be consistent with his character but all of this is to say that paul is warning them hey look you got to be kind to one another you have to be kind to those who have fallen away. Extend the, kind, the same kindness and grace that God has given to you to others. And he warns them, otherwise you too will be cut off from this root. And so what, what uh, Paul is essentially rebuking the Gentile Christians to do, he's, he's rebuking them of their arrogance. And what he's doing specifically, um, like, I, I love how Paul is trying to remedy the arrogance of these Christians. And he does it in three ways. He's, he does it first by exhorting them to seek affiliation with those who are fallen, Right? Uh, to recognize that Jew and Gentile live under God's grace, that you guys are more similar than you are different. And number two, to be grateful and appreciate that their salvation is a gift, right? It's not something that they've earned. And so you should not be prideful in it, but you should have humility in it. And finally, to treat each other with kindness. And so, the same way that Paul exhorts the Gentile Christians to attack the arrogance, I believe we too should adopt these principles in our walks with God. That early on, earlier on, um, I talked about how uh, there were some people who I knew who fallen away. And maybe there are some people that you might know who fallen away, who used to go to church and, and, and Bible studies. But now they live a very different lifestyle. It's almost as if they've actually forgotten about God. And, and, and maybe some of them have discipled you and maybe you looked up to them. And, and when you see their lives now, you're really disappointed. You're really discouraged. And, and maybe, um, like I remember I was talking to one of my friends about this, how like it's been five, ten years since we've been at church. And, there, and a lot of our friends have gone separate, different paths in lives. And, and, and he was just saying, you know, how, how they were just like really disappointed. 
and it discouraged them spiritually, uh, specifically because um, his disciple had just had just completely fallen away, and he questioned all, any and all of the wisdom and 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 knowledge that he gained, um, and the blessing and the benefit that he received from his disciple, all, all the principles that he taught, he because he became scared because he was like, look, like my disciple believed in these things and he ultimately fell away. And so is any of it good? Because like if I start believing in these values, will that ultimately lead me to fall away too? And, and, and he was just really scared and, and confused. And I can understand why he might think that and why he might feel so discouraged and um, because there's a sense of trust that is broken. There's a sense of betrayal. And, and like you had believed this person. You, have re- you had relied on this person to take care of you and to, and to teach you good values and to direct your relationship with God. But five years later, now, now they're in just in a completely different place. And my friend was actually very hurt by this and, and angry towards that person and super judgmental. And he's like, oh, I can't believe I ever thought that they believed in Christ. I can't believe that like, I trusted them. And they were really hurt. But if there's anything that we are to draw away from the passage that we looked at today is to listen to Paul's exhortation to love. It's his, is to listen to his exhortation to be kind. It's for us to check our spiritual arrogance at the door and to remind ourselves to have humility and gratitude in our present circumstance. That when we see others who have fallen away, that when we see others who were part of the church but now aren't living a righteous lifestyle or in a lifestyle that is God-honoring, and um, when we see these people, that our immediate reaction should not be judgment, should not be condescension, but rather we should seek affiliation. Right? We should try to to identify with how we are more similar than we are not, that we too are sinners, that we, that we both live under God's grace. And just like how Paul said, if Israel repents, then these two people, or if Israel repents, that they'll be regrafted in, so too there is hope for people who've fallen away to come back to Christ. There is that hope that God extends. If He did it for Israel, He can do it for our friends who've fallen away. And at the same time, we should also be grateful and appreciative of our salvation by faith, not by works, that our salvation is a gift and that we should not have arrogance on it. We should not look to judge or look down or condescend on others because we have it, because we have the the blessing and the privilege of, of living and walking with God. Instead, of arrogance, we should have the opposite mentality, which is to extend kindness, which is to extend grace. We should love them in the same way that God has loved us. The same way that God has extended to us grace in our sin, love in our sin, so too should we extend grace and love to those who have fallen away. Because truth is, right, like when, when uh, we, don't, we don't know their stories, it, and it's really easy to judge and to, and to make assumptions when we look on their feed, on their Facebook story or their Instagram or their Snapchat story, right? But the truth is that we actually have no context. And, and whenever I have the time to sit down with these people who've fallen away, um, it, and I hear their stories, it just changes everything of, of, 
it just changes my perspective and the assumptions that I've had of, about them, about why they ended up um, where they are now. And, and when I hear their stories, I just have deep compassion for the pain that they've experienced in church that I did not hear about. I have such great sympathy of how they might have felt abandoned by God when they went through a really difficult time. And what I learned sitting and talking to these people is that, that what they need is not judgment, but what they need actually is love. What they need is kindness. What they need is compassion. They need understanding. They need someone to listen to them, to hear them out. They need God's love to be reflected off of us and shown to them to restore them. And so that's the exhortation. That's the application that I I, I draw from our passage from Romans chapter 11 today. And so we're going to have the worship team up, up and we're going to have a time of prayer and reflection on the message. And so let me open us up in prayer. So God, as we contemplate your message, may we remember um, not to, to attack our spiritual arrogance, to attack our spiritual cry, uh, pride in three ways. To seek affiliation with others, to not compare, but to, to see how we are more similar than not. To be grateful in our salvation by works and understand that it is a gift and there's nothing that we've done to earn it or to receive it. And finally, that Lord, that we would actively seek to treat others with kindness, with those who have fallen away with kindness, those within our church with kindness, and to extend the same love that you've extended us to others.